was the mid-90s. Sketches were all the rage. So was the chain wallet and the backward cap. And who was everywhere? Alanis Morissette. That's who. And on this day in 1996, Alanis Morissette won Album of the Year at the Grammys for Jagged Little Pool. And best rock song for the song here, you ought to know. She's become one of the, it's become one of the best-selling albums of all time and made Morissette the first Canadian to achieve double diamond sales. And I don't know, Jenny Morden, if you can recall the mid-90s and this song here, you could oh, not def- hear it. I definitely remember it. And I, and, no, and I think I suspect that Alanis Morissette might have been a slightly angry woman in the mid-90s because a lot of the songs on that album were, were slightly angry, I think. But, um, but Isn't that song. ironic? <laughs> right, isn't it? Isn't it? It's like, what is it, looking for a fork and find a drawer for a knife yeah. or something? Yeah. Like um, yeah. I, I, I can't profess to being a huge Alanis Morissette fan ever, Chris Wickider, but actually, listen to this right now. It's it was pretty a great cool. Album. It's pretty cool. Yeah. My ex-wife really loved this album. We went to see Alanis Morissette at the event centre in Wellington in about, ooh... 98 maybe what was she, it like? she came out it was a very good concert she was very good life yeah. I didn't realise it was one of the you know biggest selling selling albums ever never really would have thought of, that of all time that's right mm. yeah you know uh, bigger than other Canadian acts like you know, Brian Adams um, heart you know just heart Canadian yeah <laughs> 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 maybe <laughs> Maybe we should have a Canadian special in terms of music on the panel. We'll do that. Thank you, Chris. Kia ora. Um, yeah, quite a response regarding uh, voluntary buyouts. Um, what precedent would a voluntary buyout set for the future? What happens when waterfront properties start repeatedly flooding? Tax ca- taxpayers cannot bail everyone out. Um, interesting discussion with Morgan says someone, if the end point is buyer beware, then the limb reports need to be changed to include recent flooding with dates, recent splits with dates, etc. Really good point. Uh, yes, mm, um, uh, etc. The statement of a one in a 100 year event is no longer a valid statement to include in the limb, says uh, Bill. You're on the panel on RNZ National, completely different topic here. Some citizens advise. Bureau staff took a couple of hours away from work today to protest alongside their volunteers against the funding cuts proposed by the Auckland Council. The protest was helpfully supported, uh, they say, by the PSA. Uh, PSA Social Justice Sector organiser Simon Oosterman called the Council's proposal outrageous, quote-unquote, and he says the Citizens Advice Bureaus have offered critical support to vulnerable people for 50 years, including supporting Aucklanders during the recent cyclone and floods. So with us is Leomi Wade, the manager at the Glen Eden Citizens Advice Bureau. Leomi, kia ora. Kia ora. And so you're out today to protest uh, against these proposed funding cuts. You've personally had quite a journey with the Citizens Advice Bureau. Tell us that story. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it was this Citizens Advice Bureau as well. I literally live up the road. Um, for a bit of background, in 2002, I got hit by a car while cycling to work. So I went from a very active 25-year-old cycling, swimming, gym and active social life to basically lying down for three years. I did do a degree in that time, but I spent most of it um, with lots and lots of special aids to help get me um, through the whole process. Um, 
long story short, that was 2002, um, I arrived in New Zealand and I was like, well, it seems to be taking a long time for me to get over this uh, this car accident. Um, but at the time, I had been misdiagnosed. Um, so when I arrived in New Zealand, I wasn't particularly keen on talking to the health professionals because in the UK I'd been um, I'd had a very bad relationship with them. Right. Um, when I when I sort of started talking to the doctors here, they sort of read my notes and were like, "Oh, fibromyalgia," and, um, and you know they helped me with some pain relief, but not enough, it turns out. Um, and I meanwhile just tried to sort of keep myself well and fix myself, you know, as best we can when, when we're just sort of intelligent humans. Um, but basically, I didn't do a great job of it. You know, bit by bit, injury after injury, I I just became more and more disabled. Um, and you know, these things creep up on you, you're very busy with growing little children and feeding them and so on, you don't mm. notice how bad it's got. Until sort of, I was driving I was driving home and realized that I um, was not living any kind of a life. I, I was getting up in the morning, taking my kids to school, coming home, going to sleep, getting up, collecting my kids from school, coming home, going to sleep on the sofa, getting up, making dinner, and then going to sleep, and my husband put the babies to bed. Um, and that really is no life. And I was driving past uh, the Glen, Glen Eden Citizens Advice Bureau, I thought, you know, that's actually what I need. I need some fair, impartial, confidential advice. I don't know how I've got myself into this position, but this is no life for, you know, mid-30s. Um, so I, I walked in. It took me 15 minutes to get in to, see, in to to just walk in. I was in a terrible state. I got taken aside by a lovely woman who will be my personal hero forever. She sat down and talked to me for two hours, and she listened to the whole story. She listened to my uh, discomfort with talking about anything medical with the medical professionals who'd, you know, misdiagnosed me and were ignoring what I was saying. And she gave me um, really sound, solid advice as to how to reapproach, how to get myself a GP who would listen, um, how, you know, know, how to stand up for myself, um, what approach I should take, make sure I get a double booking, make sure I've got all the notes, you know, really, really sort of, to advocate for myself. Um, and she, she, you know, she talked to me about getting a disability car park. Sounds simple. But when you can't walk, these right. things are very, very necessary. She was absolutely brilliant. And on the side, she said, oh, of course, you know, one of the ways to integrate back into society, come and volunteer at the CAB. Oh, I see. <laughs> because I couldn't even sit up, you know. I Gosh, was mighty. sleeping most of the time. So, um, so that is, I mean, that's quite a powerful testimony of... Uh, you know, uh, discovering the Citizens Advice Bureau. They've been around since 1970 in uh, Auckland and indeed across the country. The issue here, uh, if you've missed it, is that the, the, the proposing to cut uh, the funding for Citizens Advice Bureau in Auckland. And I guess you're saying, well, actually, that is, uh, that's not the right thing to do. Shall we bring the panel and see what they think of it? And also, I'd like to hear, you've heard Leomi's story of uh, CAB. Do you have a Citizens Advice Bureau story? Text me 2101 or email the panel at rnz.co.nz. Jenny. Um, I've I've known a couple of women over the years who have volunteered and worked at the Citizens Advice Bureau, and they're both um, intelligent, 
uh, women with lots of life experience, very practical people. And I can just imagine that they are the kind of people that, you know, someone who's in that position of needing to go to a Citizens Advice Bureau and ask for assistance and ask for help would find incredibly reassuring. And I just think that, you know, it's easy for those of us who have got people to talk to or, you know, friends or a network of, of people, but not everybody has that. And these people fill a gap. And goodness sake, you know, why do we why do we have to cut funding for everything? Let's just keep these organisations going that provide help and assistance to people who can't find it elsewhere. All right, so we're talking $2 million here. That's the funding. It's all volunteer, so you don't have that wage, I guess. No. Stay there, Leomi. Bring Chris Wekiner in. Yeah, my, my view, I remember I formed a view of Citizens Advice Bureau as being a very important window into the community as a, a young journo in provincial towns. You you could talk to the C- Citizens Advice Bureau and they would tell you, we're, having, we're seeing trends, we're seeing this being an issue with with bills or this this being an issue with family violence or, or these sorts of things. So a very important window into into community. So Leomi, I wanted to ask you at the moment, what's your workload? What has it been tailing off uh, or is it growing? Where are you at with people needing and wanting advice? Uh, well, I must, for, you know, for a little provider, I've actually only, I, I volunteered for five years, but I've only been the manager here for, uh, well, since mid-October. Um, I we have a a steady stream of people, and it's it, it it's it's very variable. But it is we will run the gamut from absolutely we will have tenants, we will have landlords, we'll have protection orders, we'll have people trying to find a decent local nursery. Um, we we really do have we are a universal service. Um, we are we have got plenty of people. We have. Lots of people don't have access to the internet, and all of those people are being asked by the government to go online, and it's not possible for them. So I don't know where they're going to go. That we are the whole universal nature of our of our of our work is that we will be seeing anybody for anything, and we see we really don't know what's going to come through the door. It's a fascinating job. Um, it's but, very, yeah, yeah. It's, it's certainly not tailing off. No, well, submissions are now open, so you can uh, have your say. We've had a bit of response on this, Leomi, but uh, for now, um, all the very best. And, look, thank you thank for sharing you. your personal story. Kia ora. Thank you. Kia ora. Yeah, that's uh, Leomi Way there, the manager at the Glen Eden Citizens Advice Bureau. Uh, someone says the CAB helped me change my name so I could live with dignity. Uh, another one says, uh, as an ex-volunteer, I know that it'll be the elderly, the disabled, new migrants, and our most vulnerable people who will suffer. This is wrong uh, in that person's view. I wanted to get the panellists' views briefly on this before we move on. Pressures continue for Te Whata Order Health NZ Chair Rob Campbell to be sacked for a blunt critique of National Party leader Christopher Luxon and National's new water policy on LinkedIn. Campbell accused the National Party of blowing the dog whistle on co-governance regarding three waters. Now, Rob Campbell has held very high-profile positions before, including chairing Sky City, Somerset and Tourism Holdings, and he's one of New Zealand's top-ranked corporate directors, chairing billions in NZX capitalisation. The Prime Minister uh, won't express confidence in him, and it's been shunted to the ministers to make a decision on that. Just round the panel on that, uh, what what do you make of this uh, in terms of 
political neutrality. You first, Chris Wikaida. Well, that's one of these things. You know, Rob's got, he's highly capable, um, he's highly regarded, as you've said, and, and one of the reasons he's ended up in this position is because he's been a strong of mind, strong of decision-making, um, and, and, and very forthright. However... If you take on a crown role or a public service role, you know, with that comes rules. You know, we might say tikanga, if you like. Um, And while he said that these were comments that I made on my LinkedIn page as in my capacity as an individual citizen, well, that doesn't actually wash. I mean, me as a consultant at times, you know, I've had to step back from doing the likes of this, the panel, because um, I've done work for a government department and they've said, you know, the same rules apply for you as a contractor, as a staff member, so you can't do that at the moment. Um, So I didn't. Um, If you want the job, you want to do the job, there's some rules that come with it. You can't just make up your own. Okay, so he has a duty of responsibility to actually zip it when it comes to personal opinion. Jenny? Yeah, I have to agree with everything Chris has just said. He chose to take on a Crown Chair position, and even though he's not strictly a public servant in that role, he knew what the rules were, um, and it's it's like anyone in one of those public or, or you know government-type positions. Sometimes you just have to keep your own opinions to yourself if they affect the neutrality of the role that you have taken on. And seriously, if he's going to criticise the national government, and we do end up with a change of government later this year, how is he expected to work um, with a new government when he has been so public in his criticism? A phrase a phrase which was coined out of the National Party some years ago, gone by lunchtime. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Hey, and the role yeah. he has taken on here is incredibly important. You know, this isn't this isn't a small role. This is a big role, and this is a you know once in a lifetime reconfiguration of our health system. He he he's got to be there, and he's got to be there but fully we, but, for but, the but role. But to both of you, when he says, "Look, this does not impact um, this work that I do." I mean, this is a major piece of work. This mm. Health NZ billions of do- billions of dollars. He jumps onto LinkedIn and makes a personal comment. I think that's naive because health is one of, and has been for decades, one of the most political of portfolios. Um, Politics is never far away from the health portfolio, so it does matter and it does impact. And also, you know, maybe, maybe it is time to say, I made a mistake, I won't repeat the mistake. But he won't. He won't actually admit that it was a mistake. Clearly he doesn't think so, but, you know. Sometimes you have to go, I got it wrong, sorry. Oh, look, and I can imagine that, you know, um, LinkedIn has, uh, like him, a lot of people with very forthright um, positions. Can, and I, can I just bring that up with you, Chris? Because what I'm noticing is that um, it's, less, it's, 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 it's less now about Twitter having the hot takes. Try jumped onto LinkedIn. It was actually a place a couple of years ago where nothing happened. LinkedIn now. It was all about oh, business and professional LinkedIn. It, it has become, I call it Reddit with a tie. <laughs> I call it Facebook for business. <laughs> well, there you go. You heard you it here. Read it with a tie. Chris Wikaida. <laughs> well, but, and it has. And I've had a lot of um, particularly young Māori professionals coming up saying, hey, we went on there for, for business-related, professional-related stuff, and it's the cesspool of, of racism. Where did that come from? Yeah. And, and I can imagine that that's what um, Rob is responding to. Okay, that rolled him up. He wasn't happy with what he was reading. 
that actually doesn't matter with the significance of the role that he has um, undertaken. Just Focus on the, on the good he can yeah. do. Before we go to our next guest, can I just bring up that role of LinkedIn? You're both professionals here. What is it about LinkedIn, Jenny and Chris, that you have people in positions of power, you've got executive directors and management, suddenly decide to um, lose their guard and do some, quite often, not always, but quite out there opinion? Well, I think it's that they don't actually understand it's social media. I really do. It's no different than if they did it on Facebook or Instagram or Reddit or whatever. It's social media, and they seem to forget this fact. And it's very, it's it's quite a lot more public than other social media, and that anybody can join and follow and listen to what you've got to say. And yeah, I I don't particularly like LinkedIn personally. So. I think it's probably considered by those who get a bit carried away a bit of a safe space. It's something mm. where, you know, oh, look, there, there is, you know, birds of a feather in here um, and I'm happy in this space and therefore I will I will voice my, my opinions and, and, and my takes and reckons on things, um, not realising that everyone else is having a look too. All right. Uh, Chris Wikider and Ginny Morton with me on uh, the panel. Very nice to be with you. Eight to five. And finally, we've spoken on the panel in recent weeks about the funding crisis in the New Zealand arts sector. Last week, theatre lecturer James Wenley told us why he thinks we need a dedicated cultural arts strategy. Well, yesterday, a spokesperson for Arts Minister Carmel Cepoloni confirmed that it won't be happening like it is happening in Australia. They've signalled a comprehensive five-year plan and a $300 million boost for Australian and First Nations arts. And our guest this afternoon describes uh, the Ministry for Culture and Heritage as a sleep Professor Peter O'Connor is Director of the Centre for Arts and Social Transformation at Auckland University. Professor O'Connor, kia ora. Kia ora. This is very interesting because here we have on the back of, uh, for example, Timatatini here, widely hailed and regarded as a real success. You know, a lot of eyeballs, a huge, um, a huge audience response. Um, and then you look at Australia and seeing what they're doing with regard to this massive uh, boost, um, both in general arts funding and First Nations funding, and then here. We're asleep. Not... So you, you really endorse what you've just said, asleep? Of course, of course, we're asleep. Uh, you, you know, uh, the opportunities for us to invest rather than fund, you know, they talk about it in Australia as reviving an industry that was brought to its knees by COVID in years and years of neglect, and they've, they've taken off, and we're kind of just ticking along as if this sector, which has such a huge and vital role in, in, in so many aspects of our lives, we'll just kind of manage that without a vision, without any kind of sense of what we might want to achieve or criteria by which we might assess or, or, or understand what we're doing. It's certainly the opposite of woke. It's asleep. Let's go around the panel on that, Chris. Well, it's uh, Tamatatini having just passed, and I know that there are a lot of people saying, hey, it, it, it gathers um, accumulatively over the three days a far bigger audience than than the NTSO and, and the Royal New Zealand Ballet and the likes. So I remember back to 1996 and the New Zealand First National Coalition Agreement 
that was made. That's where the first dedicated money for kapahaka for Tamatatini came from. It was pushed by Tuareki John Delamere. It was part of the formal coalition agreement, which gave the Nat something of a problem because they'd just got in, the books were a mess, the country's finances were, were, were not as good as they were expecting them to be. They were considering cutting funding for the ballet and the NZSO. And then they looked at it and realised, well, we can't give a million dollars for kapahaka if we just cut NZSO and, and the ballet. So it was actually that coalition agreement for a million dollars for Tamatatini, which saved their banking. Interesting, very interesting. <laughs> to, 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 to the solution, uh, Peter, because this is the second take on this issue, you know, um, there will be people saying, now is not the right time to talk about this. What would you say? I'd say they're wrong because the research says that they're wrong. And they're wrong because we know, for example, that the arts are vital in health. 3,000 World Health Organization studies which show that if you invest in the arts, you have a really strong health outcomes. There were really strong health outcomes from Matatini. We know that the arts and corrections makes a huge difference in terms of recidivism. We know the arts and education makes a huge difference in literacy and numeracy. We know the arts and foreign affairs is about how we sell our country. And if you don't join the dots across government to say, this is our policy, this is how we see the arts, not how we're going to fund it, but how we're going to invest it for outcomes, you're just drifting along. And what you see, I think, with... um, the, with, with Carmel Cipollone at the moment is just a drift. Oh, um, and a drift apart from a sector that's ready and willing and, and wanting to jump in boots and all. And, and why do you think that is? Why, why, why do you think there is this reluctance? Is, you know, in New Zealand we have a tendency to say it's arts versus sport and sport always wins. But you know, when you look at something like kapahaka, you've got to say it's the most beautiful combination of almost of both of those things. Why do you think there is this reluctance? Well, I, I, we, we've always had a, an ambivalent attitude towards the arts. And part of that is because we haven't necessarily valued our indigenous art forms in the manner that we should have. And I think that's really exciting about what's happening in Australia. They're ahead of us. That's where they're investing. They're saying that's where we need to be looking. You know, Ngātoi, the arts that belong here and are shaped uniquely by this land, that's what we should be investing in. That's where we should be. I'm wondering whether this is highlighted at the moment coming forward from that original you know, coalition agreement in 96 forward to when Helen Clark was Prime Minister, she made herself Minister of, of the Arts. So you had you know, the boss um, pushing that portfolio and we haven't had that since. Has, has it lost some of its momentum because of that? Peter? Yeah, I think it has lost its momentum. I mean, Jacinda Ardern was the Minister of the Arts extraordinarily beautiful rhetoric. I had people all over the world citing just in the uh, support of the arts. I mean, we go, yes, but, mm. you know, Gough Whitlam 30 years ago said that, the, that the, the ultimate goal of the Labour government was a cultural, was a society that valued the arts. And he said that was more important than any other aim of a Labour government. Well, a bit of response here, Peter. From that. Our first time responder of the panel, our son is in the performing arts, lack of funding and widespread. Unless you can kick, head or catch a ball, nothing there. <laughs> uh, Professor O'Connor, kia ora. Chris Wickrider, Jenny Morton, wonderful to have you on. Thank you all. A little bit of an honest moral set, taking you to Checkpoint with Lisa Owen. I'm Wallace Chapman. See you tomorrow, 3.45.